No, just a tad, Sue. Just a tad. That's better, I reckon. Thank you. Um, talk about a clear head. I wish I had a clear nose. I'm, I am a bit bugged up this morning. I do apologise. Um, never mind, I'm, I'm sure we cope. Um, we're going to be reading from Matthew 10. Matthew chapter 10, uh, uh, beginning at verse 1. Um, I know Jane's uh, read it out already, but we'll, we'll, no harm in, in, in doing it again. Jesus called together his twelve disciples. He gave them the power to force out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and sickness. The first of the twelve apostles was Simon, better known as Peter. His brother Andrew was an apostle, and so were James and John, the two sons of Zebedee. Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus were also apostles. The others were Simon, known as the eager, the eager one. I think we, we normally know that as Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed Jesus. Jesus sent out the twelve apostles with these instructions. Stay away from the Gentiles. And don't go to any Samaritan town. Go only to the people of Israel, because they are like a flock of lost sheep. As you go, announce that the kingdom of heaven will soon be here. Heal the sick, raise the dead to life, heal people who have, who have leprosy, and force out demons. You receive without paying, now give without being paid. Don't take along any gold, silver, or copper coins. Don't carry a travelling bag, or an extra shirt, or sandals, or a walking stick. Workers deserve their food. So when you go to a town or a village, find someone worthy enough to have you as their guest and stay with them until you leave. When you go to a home, give it your blessing of peace. If the home is deserving, let your blessing remain with them. But if the home isn't deserving, take back your blessing of peace. If someone won't welcome you or listen to your message, leave their home or town and shake the dust from your feet at them. I promise you, that the day of judgment will be easier for the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. I am sending you like lambs into a pack of wolves, so be as wise as snakes and as innocent as doves. Whatever does that have to do with our situation now in 2014? There's a few scattered thoughts I've got. Now remember, the, the, the kind of overarching subject uh, uh, of all of this is Jesus training the disciples to be just that, disciples, followers of him. And it's within that framework that we're thinking. Now this situation was very unusual First of all, um, he tells them, doesn't he, not, he tells them specifically not to go to the Gentiles, which is interesting. And yet we know, don't we, that that won't always be the case. You know, we've got the, the Great Commission, where Jesus said, to them, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Go to the people of all nations and make them my disciples. So this wasn't always going to be the case. There's a progression. The other thing is you pick up is the sense of urgency. That's why they weren't to take anything with them. They didn't want anything that would hold them back. 
It was, there, there was no time to stop and plan. They were to go pretty well where they were. <coughs> it wasn't like going on holiday where you do plan ahead, you know, things you need. The reason I said shoes, by the way, is my daughter's the only person I know who has a separate bag for her shoes, <laughs> as well as all her other clothes. I normally only take two pairs of shoes, and that's quite a lot. I've seen Len pointing at Liz. Um, anyway, you get the sense of urgency. They were to go out to the people of Israel at that time. So in one sense, at least, it was an unusual situation. But that doesn't mean it hasn't got things to say to us. Now, there's a very real sense that we are sent. We are sent out, just like the twelve. But where are we sent? Are we always inevitably sent, I don't know, to some sort of foreign parts, take us out of our comfort zone, if I can put it that way, a, a different culture, or sent out to, to preach on the streets or whatever? Well, here's an intriguing little bit. It comes from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 17. Now, the, the letter to the Corinthians, particularly the first one, and to, to some degree the second one, it's a very troubled letter. It, um, uh, the, the church in Corinth was a church in trouble for all sorts of reasons. One of them, they, they, they had a group who, who, who regarded themselves as kind of super spiritual and were making all sorts of suggestions of various things. Listen to what Paul says to them. He says, in every church, I tell the people to stay as they were when the Lord Jesus chose them and God called them to be his own. Now I say to the, the same thing to you. If you are already circumcised, don't try to change it. If you are not circumcised, don't get circumcised. Being circumcised or uncircumcised isn't really what matters. The important thing is to obey God's commands. So don't try to change what you were when God chose you. Are you a slave? Don't let that bother you. But if you can win your freedom, you should. When the Lord chooses slaves, they become his free people. And when he chooses free people, they become slaves of Christ. God paid a great price for you. So don't become slaves of anyone else. Stay where you what, what you were when God chose you. So it would seem, on the whole, and it's my suggestion to you, that we are sent into a hostile world, but it's only the minority of people, you know, who are sent off to what we would we used to call them missionaries, to foreign parts, you know, to Africa, wherever. We are actually sent where we already are, I reckon. We're meant to be disciples of Jesus Christ in the situations we find ourselves in now. And another thing. And this is really important. And I've said this two or three times before. We are not called to make converts. The, that word doesn't really appear in the Bible. What we are called to do, what we're commissioned to do, 
is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, to be a disciple means that we we become infectious. (coughs) We are called to make disciples. We're not saved to kind of escape the world, you know, all sort of kind of... We're not here to kind of mark in time in between, you know, the time of our conversion to when we go to heaven. No, no. Ephesians 2 and verse 8 puts it this way. It's by God's grace that you've been saved through faith. It is not the result of your own efforts, but God's gift, so that no one can boast about it. God has made us what we are. In our union with Christ Jesus, listen to this, he has created us for a life of good deeds which he has already prepared for us to do. We're meant to live a life of good deeds. We're sent out into the world to live the life of a disciple. And when I talk about us being sent out, when I talk about us being sent out into the, into the situations we find ourselves I'm not talking about the things we do here, the things we might label church activities. You see, to be a disciple, it's a way of life. We're not to sort of push things into compartments. It's desperately important that we start to think in that way. So, whether you're at school, whether you're at work, whether you're at home, whether you're doing the shopping, (laughs) whether you're seeing the doctor, whether I'm down the allotment chatting to the guy who's got the plot next door to me, we're called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, it begs the question, what does that look like? If we're sent out as his disciples, how might we go about that? And I've got a few few things to show you. If you put it up for me, Susan, don't do anything just yet. Now, these are all M's. We've got M1, 2, 3, 4, 5 and 6 on motorways. <laughs> the first one we might ask ourselves, how might I model godly character? I'm not just talking about here, I'm talking about out in the world. And if I can emphasise, we're not talking about not doing things, you know, not swearing, not smoking, not whatever. It means so much more than this. This is what Jesus meant when he talked about, you know, he said your righteousness must exceed, must be better than that of the Pharisees. It's a way of thinking 
a way of living, a way of reacting. It's my feeling, really and truly, we show our true colours when we're wronged as Christians. When someone does us a wrong, and how we react to that, and how we respond to that, we need to model a godly character. So that's M1. M2, make good work. Be good. Do good things. Whatever that might be. And the next one, Sue, M3. Minister grace and love, no matter what. That's tough, isn't it? That's hard. Incidentally, all these things, I'm not saying we're going to get it right all the time. I'm not saying it's the easy. Here's another one, M4. This requires a bit more explanation. Mould a culture. What that means is, well, I'll give you an example. In a, work, in a workplace situation, it doesn't have to be, but it could be a workplace situation. It's somehow or other influence it for the good. That, that it mirrors more the way God wants things done. So you mould a culture. You know, we can all do this. M5, hopefully you can see that, be a mouthpiece for truth and justice. That means having the courage to speak out when something's wrong. It might be a work colleague who's been treated unjustly. Or it might be when you're making a complaint to someone or to a company. But also you see you need to minister grace and love when you're doing that kind of thing. And last of all, over and above all of that, be a messenger of the gospel. We've got good news to pass on, haven't we? To be a message of the good news that Jesus Christ, or rather, let's start again, that God, through Jesus Christ, can, wants to, put us right with him. That we can call God, the creator of the universe, our father. And have that relationship with him. And know that we need never be on our own. And we can live a life of purpose, of fulfilment for him. Now I've got a couple of stories to share with you. Of people who took these things seriously. But before I share those with you, I just want to point out a few things. First of all, this isn't prescriptive. This isn't, I'm, I'm not suggesting these are things that we should do. Our situation, your personal situation, our collective situation is unique. And we find ways of working through these M's in different ways and in different situations. All it is, is these are, uh, this, these are two examples of people who took the call to be a disciple seriously, where they find themselves. Excuse me. There was something else, and it slipped my mind, bother, uh, that I was going to say about this. Oh, yes. These are quite, in, in one sense, um, kind of boring st stories. I don't mean it the way it sounds. What I mean is, 
There aren't any real miracles involved in this, not in the, in the sense that we talk about miracles, and so on and so forth. But again, they're stories of God doing remarkable things through ordinary people and through ordinary situations. And one other. I knew there was something else I wanted to mention. I've deliberately chosen two stories which don't involve the work situation. These are people at two extreme age groups. And I've done that deliberately, because not all of us are in full-time employment, are we? And the call to be a disciple is a call to be a disciple wherever you are. The call for us to be sent out as ambassadors for the gospel is true for all of us, wherever we find ourselves. So just listen to these two stories. I found it just brilliant. In a primary school... Oh, by the way, these are true stories. These are things which really happened. This is not fiction. In a primary school close to where the A404 runs down by a, uh, runs down by a great oak, there was a group of Christian children. Every year, the whole school... The teachers, staff and kids discuss what the school's values should be. The values that are displayed in the school, uh, in the school hall on paper elephant heads. They put, they put these values that they're going to attempt to run the school by. They put them on these elephant heads and they're displayed around the school hall. And shape all that everyone does. That's staff, students, so forth. Anyone may suggest a new value to replace an existing value. And every year, everyone votes. The school, it's called Holy Trinity, is a Church of England school, but counts among its people Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, and many with no particular faith at all. So the group of Christian children pondered how they might, in this place of study and play, of talk and food and many faiths, bring the light of Christ to shine. They really did this. They probably wouldn't have put it quite that way, but they, they, were really, they, they really did this. And so they went to the head teacher and said, we think one of our values should be, what would Jesus do? And so the head teacher talked to the Muslims, who didn't mind because Jesus is a prophet after all. And she talked to the Hindus. And after much discussion among themselves and with the Christian children, the Hindu children said, this is a Christian school after all, so we feel you have every right to have this value. And then the whole school voted. What would Jesus do became one of the school's values, one of the criteria by which everything that happens in the school would be evaluated. And Jesus' name was raised and lifted up. Literally, on a paper elephant head, on the walls of the school hall. And then he finishes with this little story. He says, glory indeed to God. Now you might think that's not particularly significant. I think it is. I think it's extraordinary (laughs) that a group of ten-year-olds, this was a group of ten-year-olds, did this. Did they do all of those things? Well, they certainly modelled godly character. 
did they, the, the one that stands out to me, they moulded a culture. They brought the way the school does things more in line, hopefully, with the way God wants things done. And that's astounding. That's quite an achievement. We hear so much bad news, don't we? And yet God's working in these extraordinary ways. If only we had eyes to see them. Now, the other story. This is completely the, the, the other end of the spectrum in terms of age. And this, incidentally, involves a man who was an ordained, uh, is a retired, ordained Church of England minister. After living for 25 years in the same place, Peter retired and moved to a town where he didn't know anyone. He didn't have an obvious front line. Though there were a lot of things Peter could do, including preaching and teaching and counselling. He prayed and asked God, what do you want me to do? It's a brave prayer and a humble one. You might not get an answer you like. For Peter the Lord brought Jeremiah 29.7 to mind. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. And Peter wondered, how can I bless the town God has brought me to? And listen to this. So he prayed again. And the Lord told him to pick up litter. It reminded of Jesus washing the disciples' feet in the upper room, cleaning off the dirt. So he went to the council, this is an incredible story, and asked them for a litter-picking claw. So he goes to the council and asks them for one of these things. And they gave him one on permanent loan. And so it came to pass <laughs> that on the days when Peter went on his two-mile walk, through, uh, no, walk to, through and from the nature reserve close to his home, He'd pray and praise God for his world and pick up the litter that marred it and put it in a plastic bag. And he'd smile at people he'd pass on the path and say, hello. Pretty soon people started to say hello back. And little conversations began. And the months passed and people would ask, why do you do it? Because God loves the world he has made. Or they would inquire, are you being paid? And he hadn't been, of course. And one person said, that's a thankless task. You'll get to heaven for that. So Peter replied that he hoped to get to heaven, not because, of the, because he picked up the litter, but because he knows Jesus, who gave his life for him. During Easter week, he, said, he says hello to the people he normally says hello to. And he gives them a gift. A little cross. Made, he tells them, from Olivewood, from Israel, where Jesus lived. A gift to remind us that at Easter, Jesus died and rose again. And some people have indeed come to evangelistic meetings at the church. So as a result of this man and what he's doing. And so as he walks, Peter, the litter picker, picks up litter. And drivers he doesn't know toot their horns and wave in respect and gratitude. And then on one ordinary day, like any other ordinary day, a white van man. The white van pulled up beside him, the window rolled down, and the man in the white van, who had, of course, somewhere to go and work to do, said, 
Thanks very much. What strikes you about the story? In what ways has Peter done these things? There's something to think about, isn't it? But that's extra- don't you think that's extraordinary? So something relatively mundane. God chose to work. And something for us all to think about. And maybe pray if we dare. Lord, what do you want me to do? I often wonder, say he said to you, come in, I I want you to go out and pick litter. (laughs) Extraordinary thing. Think, what is going on here? So when you come in your groups, obviously discuss these things. How might we go about this? We are sent out into the world. We're commissioned to make disciples. There's a sense of urgency about it. We're not to have anything which holds us back. We've got the most important message ever to pass on to people. But when we look at these things and have that in mind, where is God sending us? You you know something something of an aside? It's estimated that on average, us Christians... You'd be surprised. We rub shoulders with, meet with, talk to, roughly, uh, on average, 50 people a week who aren't Christians. Doesn't matter what situation you find yourself in. When you go to the, you know, when you go to the shops, you chat to your neighbours. Uh, I go to work. Whatever. We do that. So many opportunities to do all these things for God. We really are sent out, aren't we? With a challenging lifestyle. (laughs) Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, I'm sure we want to glorify your name. We want people to know about you. We want people to know not just what you've done for us, but what you've done for them. And Lord, taking our heart in our mouths with a certain sense of fear and trepidation. (laughs) What do you want us to do to further your kingdom? in this little patch of the world that you've placed us in. Help us, Lord. Thanks again. We're not asked to do this by ourselves. We have you through your Holy Spirit with us. And we don't pretend to think that we will always get it right. But we know you're a forgiving God. You put up with our shortcomings and our failings. We can come to you and confess them. And we can start again. So help us, Lord, to be the people you want us to be in the places where you've put us, where you've sent us.
And again, we ask, help us to glorify your name in whatever situation we find ourselves in. In Jesus' name. Amen.